Hello, and welcome to a bonus box of Warhammer 40K's Grim History from the Beyond. I am Zekthar, and today we are going through the Bajab War in the late 41st millennium. <clears throat> well, when we last left off in the Bajab War, Luth Horon had begun to turn full traitor, and for the first time we see him cahoots with chaos. While this is a small step, we will see it won't be long before he starts tumbling down the hill towards damnation. The reason for this was because the Loyalists had started to turn the tide of the war against him and the secessionist chapters, thanks in large part by the arrival of the brutal Minotaurs chapter. But things really started to go bad for the Astral Claws during the Second Battle of Sagan. Now, the Second Battle of Sagan was a major planetary assault undertaken at 908.m41, and the assault was carried out by the largest combined Loyalist force fielded to this point in the Badab War. This offensive utilized the massed strength of the Fire Angels, Red Scorpions, and Exorcist chapters, supported by assault specialized forces drawn from the Salamanders, Raptors, and even Nova Marines. The secessionists chose to mount a defense at any cost rather than giving up the strategically vital Sagon system. The fighting proved to be bloody and costly in the extreme. In a desperate attempt to either drive the Loyalists from the surface of Sagon III or render the planet unusable to them, the Astral Claws resorted to the use of viral weapons that slew tens of thousands of the world's population. This use of weapons of mass destruction ultimately destroyed a sizable component of the secessionists' own battle line. The Fire Angels deployed their full chapter strength and bore the brunt of the Loyalist casualties, valiantly sacrificing themselves in order to contain the Astral Claw's desperate final attempts to drive their fellows from the world through the utilization of suicide attacks. This campaign resulted in the highest death toll of any single engagement of the war to this point in the conflict, as well as the loss of several key secessionist warships and a vain counterattack on the system. The successful Loyalist invasion of the Sagon system proved to be a major turning point of the war. After the system fell under Loyalist control, it became a primary Imperial base in the Maelstrom Zone, affording the Loyalist offensive greater access to the primary stable warp routes into the region while denying those routes to the enemy. Shortly after the end of the campaign, Sagon III was used as a supply point in order to fully relieve and reinforce the world of Cerngrad and support the start of the Endemian Suppression Campaign. This Loyalist advance effectively forced the remaining Mantis Warriors forces into a purely defensive posture, isolating them from the Badab sector and their secessionist allies. After the Second Battle of Sagon, the Maelstrom Zone was effectively split into two regions, the Adaminium Cluster and the still heavily defended Badab sector itself. From this point onward in the conflict, the secessionists were only able to conduct commerce raids and targeted strikes which were carried out by the vessels of the Executioners and Lamenters Chapters fleet. Beyond the difficulties posed to the Imperium by the ongoing Badab War, the safety of the Ultima segmentum was also threatened at this time by a massive orc incursion after multiple wogs erupted across the eastern fringe of the galaxy. With the secessionists having been judged sufficiently contained after the victory of Sagon III, the Loyalists redeployed the chapters that had suffered battlefield attrition to some degree to deal with the Greenskin threat. This redeployment included the forces of the Nova Marines, Raptors, and Howling Griffins chapter. They were withdrawn one by one from the conflict in managed stages as part of a major Imperial-wide strategic deployment, along with a number of warships of the Imperial Navy Segmentum Solar Reserve Forces, which had been deployed in support of the Loyalist cause. Now, while this would seem a perfect time to gather for another assault against the Loyalists, disaster struck one of the Warder's chapters, that being the Lamenters. Now, I haven't given a full rundown of the Lamenters yet, but we must, because they are a chapter that suffers from something no other chapter does. And that would be bad luck. <laughs> The Lamenters are a successor chapter of the Blood Angels created during the 21st Cursed Founding and seem to have eliminated the gene seed flaws known as the Black Rage and the Red Thirst through unknown means. But this secret cure may have been lost along with the chapter. However, the Astartes of the Lamenters chapter are noted to suffer from a kind of mental melancholy. Although it is unclear if this is due to some sort of unexpected flaw in their gene seed or if it is simply the result of the unfortunate events that have repeatedly befallen their chapter. Although the chapter numbered among its brethren, those few Astartes descended from Sanguinius to be spared an ultimate de-evolution into something no longer human or sane, the mark of the flaw was still upon the Lamenters in the eyes of their fellow space marines. 
many of whom chose to shun the chapter, regardless of its undoubtable loyalty to the emperor of mankind and his imperium, and its noble efforts in the defense of its people. The reason for this is, well, they're unlucky. Every time they engage whatever enemy they come across, bad things happen. And, and not just to them, but to their allies as well. Proof of this is the simple fact that they have three times been brought to the very brink of destruction. First, during Abaddon's Ninth Black Crusade, which you can find in my short vox, Abaddon's Folly. The second time we are about to discuss here, in the Badab War, and later in battle with the overwhelming horror of the Tyranids. Each time they have endured, despite inherent instabilities in their chapter's gene seed. And their chapter master claims that with every trial they have overcome, the Lamenters have only grown stronger. While I'm not particularly a fan of the Blood Angels, nor their successor chapters, I do find myself often rooting for these guys. They know that more often, bad misfortune will befall them, yet they carry on with their duty, regardless of the cost. To me, that is quite honorable and very courageous. Yet in the end, we are about to see here, bad luck tends to leave them rather broken. Yet as always, they pick up the pieces and soldier on. Now, getting back to the story, though, Inquisitor Legate Jarndyce Fron provided the Loyalists with a mass of data about the Lamenters' movements and deployments, which was used to identify a pattern. By 908.m41, the Lamenters' chapter had already suffered significant losses through attrition, but they were still a formidable force to be reckoned with, and a plan was put into action to isolate them from the tyrant's cause and take them out of the war. Using the intelligence acquired by Franz' insidious spy network, the Loyalists quickly discerned that the Lamenters were being used as a blative shield by the tyrant of Badab to guard his southern flank and contest the Loyalists' domination of the Pale Stars, while he kept the bulk of the Astra Claws in reserve near Badab itself. The losses incurred by the fleet-based chapter have been due to their continuous deployment defending the southern Badab sector, as well as serving escort duties to many secessionist supply convoys. The Minotaur chapter gathered in strength awaiting the opportunity to strike, where they would be most effective. And then, that opportunity finally came, when the location of the Lamenters chapter, Bark Mater Lercamarium, was discovered in orbit over the feral world of Optera, taking on supplies. The Minotaurs immediately dispatched a rapid strike force to attack the vessel and succeeded in catching it and crippling its main drives, preventing it from fleeing the system. The Lamenters were forced to defend their chapter Barqui at all costs, as it contained both their recovered battle casualties as well as their precious resource of gene seeds. With the continued attack upon the Barqui, the majority of the Lamenters' fleet was drawn back to the Optera system. Once there, the Minotaurs laid bloody siege for 17 solar hours of brutal ship-to-ship fighting. Though the Minotaurs suffered heavy casualties, they eventually overpowered the Lamenters by virtue of their brutality and sheer weight of numbers. Their forces shattered. The few remaining Lamenters were forced to surrender rather than risk the annihilation of their precious Bark Yu. The majority of their fleet was left ruined and drifting in the void. The Minotaurs claimed salvage rights to the crippled Lamenters' fleet and the war gear of the Fallen to replace their own serious losses. The surviving Lamenters were incarcerated on a prison hulk orbiting the night side of Sagon II, amid rumors of their growing insanity and confinement. Only 311 Lamenter battle brothers survived to be interned on the prison hulk orbiting Sagon II for the rest of the war. Less than 100 Lamenters were deployed elsewhere during the fighting that still remained. The chapter's severe losses effectively removed them from the secessionist order of battle. The loss of the Lamenters for the secessionist cause, was a great strength that they could ill afford to lose. Now, the next important event that takes place in the Badab War was a rather strange one that took place on the world of Agstrom and 908.m41, in what would become one of the most remarkable operations of the Badab War. The sovereign and autonomous Adeptus Mechanicus domain of Angstrom and the eastern Maelstrom zone had remained neutral throughout the conflict, rejecting diplomatic missions and threats from both sides to join them in their cause. The world's magi felt that there was no cause for them to interfere in what they perceived as an internal dispute between the rival imperial factions. Angstrom continued their operations as usual, which included a long-standing agreement to render up a bounty of advanced weapons and refined ores to be collected by the Imperium's representatives on a three-yearly cycle from the edge of their planetary system. The magi pointedly didn't care from which of the Imperium's servants retrieved the bounty, only that they carried out their part of the arrangement without fault. 
In the past, this arrangement had provided the Maelstrom warders with a vital resource, and the Tyrant of Badab's servants continued to be in the perfect position to collect it. The Red Scorpions and the Salamanders jointly conducted a secret plan of attack, deploying a small elite force to sabotage and prevent the secessionists from claiming the bounty of the independent forge world of Angstrom. In the confusion and destruction that followed, the Angstrom Mechanicus, incensed by the outbreak of hostilities within their domain, assaulted both sides and drove them away from the system, granting the Loyalists a major strategic victory, but did, however, stir the notorious Bellicose Mechanicus of Angstrom into taking a greater interest in the war. They sent their warships and ground forces in retaliatory raids against Galen and Ibis, until the Terran legates intervened and brokered a peace, guaranteeing the fickle Anstrom Mechanicus restitutions. Remaining cautious, Lord High Commander Carib Cone took precautionary measures and dispatched the Firehawks chapter and the Raptorus Rex alongside a pursuit force composed of a mixture of loyalist chapters to conduct a blockade of the outer system's approach for the duration of the war. By 909.m41, the Imperial Loyalists had effective command of the Maelstrom Zone's major warp routes, enabling them to rapidly move their forces across the region and subjugate many rebel worlds and outposts. The Angstrom incident aftermath effectively cut the tyrant of Badab's sphere of influence in half and contained the secession, dividing the secessionists between the Animinium Cluster and the Badab sector itself. Only the unpredictable forces of the Executioner's Chapter offered a significant threat to the Loyalist control outside the Secessionist enclaves. From this point onwards, the Secessionists were effectively hemmed in around a handful of heavily defended star clusters and relegated to conducting scattered raiding operations and fighting a series of close defensive sieges. By the end of 909.m41, whispers had reached Imperial intelligent operatives of the tyrant's increasing violence and paranoia and of the further tightening of his murderous stranglehold on those worlds he still controlled. The Mantis warriors were reduced to fighting a guerrilla resistance against an ongoing loyalist suppression campaign comprising combined elements from the Fire Angels and the Sons of Medusa chapters. Sporadic and oft-times bloody engagements were also fought in the Tranquility, Iblis, and Sigard systems. The loyalist forces suffered a severe defeat when the Fire Angels strike cruiser Polaris Rising was raided by the Mantis Warriors under the leadership of their prophetic master librarian, Hazra Rith. They succeeded in damaging their main plasma reactor and weapons bays before withdrawing their forces, leaving them at the mercy of two orc kill cruisers. The Fire Angels fought a resolute last stand against the vile Greenskins, disabling one of the kill cruisers before they were boarded by the remaining orc vessel. As the orcs swarmed the decks of the Fire Angel vessel, the Mantis warriors fell in ambush upon the badly mauled orc forces from their flank and annihilated them. The remaining 37 surviving fire angels were marooned on Sigard 4, under the care of their surviving apothecary and his med servitors, while their battered vessel was taken by the Mantis warriors as their prize. The barbarous Executioner chapter continued to prove to be the scourge of the loyalist patrols and supply convoys, as well as destroying numerous outposts and listening stations. Some 43 merchantmen and 11 warships had been either seized or destroyed. They also committed themselves to several heavy raids as far as Belafron's Fall and Cairo. Their heavy actions fell against the Savage Minotaurs chapter in the southern Maelstrom zone, such as the bloody tank duel fought on the airless moon of Uzil in the Crow's world system. The location of the Executioner's base of operations continued to elude the Loyalists, allowing the Executioners to raid almost at will, giving battle against the Red Scorpions and Minotaur's chapter, harrying Loyalist shipping, and stymieing attempts to consolidate Loyalist gains. At the close of 909.m41, the Maelstrom secession had largely been contained, but the war itself was far from over. The Loyalists knew that the next phase of the campaign would be particularly brutal. It would be a time of ruthless planetary purges, scorched earth campaigns, and apocalyptic sieges. The Loyalists needed time to prepare for such a campaign and fresh reinforcements if a victory would be swiftly achieved. But Lord High Commander Carib Cone, the Magister Militum of the Adeptus Astardes forces, and his advisors knew they could not afford to wait too long before they went on the offensive. For every day gave the secessionists further opportunity to entrench and perhaps make good their own losses. Cone knew he simply could not afford to allow a general of Luthoran's caliber too long to rebuild 
plan, and prepare. With everyone licking their wounds and preparing for the bloodbath to come, the beginning of the year 910.m41 proved to be a final deathly calm before the oncoming storm, which would inevitably see the Badab War brought to a terrible conclusion. Many of the chapters of the Loyalist side had suffered substantial losses, and now would be replaced by other Space Marine chapters of even darker renown. The Maelstrom Zone would soon be visited by slaughter, unlike anything it had known in its long and turbulent history. For six long standard years, the isolated Galan system had been a prize that had been battled over repeatedly, changing hands between Loyalist and Secessionist forces several times. Most significantly, the Galan system had been the site of a major battle between the Firehawks chapter and the mixed secessionist assault force, which had incurred heavy losses on both sides, a battle which had seen Galan II's life-supporting domes laid waste, leading to mass refugee immigration to its neighbor, the frontier world of Galan VI. Under the direct command of Magister Militum Curb Colm, the Loyalist forces diverted to impose order on Galan VI, crushing any hope of future resistance utterly. Accompanied by an Ordo Hereticus detachment under Inquisitor Kramner, one of Inquisitor Legate Jardis Franz's personal aides, the only stipulation was that the planet was to remain habitable, with a sufficient core of the population infrastructure left alive and intact to service the needs of the Imperial's war effort. Plans to retake the world were calculated accordingly, under the direction of the Sons of Medusa's chapter, Iron Thane Valund Kal, the theater commander. The Sons of Medusa launched an orbital bombardment and predetermined landing zones on the outskirts of the Old City. They then claimed three company-strength landing zones on the edge of Galan Six Old City, encircling it and destroying all resistance. Over the course of three solar days and nights, the industrious Sons of Medusa landed supplies and additional Astartes and began the task of fabricating new fortifications and bastions. On the dawning of the fourth day, an unnatural fear and dread had descended upon several million surviving inhabitants. The sphere was a calculated weapon, often employed by the Sons of Medusa. Without warning, the chapter launched a large armored assault composed of rhinos, razorbacks, land raiders, and hulking dreadnoughts, while land speeders took to the skies. Alongside the green livery of the emerald armored specters of death was the crimson colors of the Inquisition's chimeras and repressors. From the vehicle's loud hailers, the Inquisition demanded the surrender of all of Galen Six's population for immediate judgment. Some of the population hurled themselves suicidally at the embodiment of the Emperor's wrath, only to be ruthlessly cut down by the Sons of Medusa, while others cowered in their hastily prepared defensive positions or attempt to flee the city. Those that attempted to do so were ruthlessly cut down by the patrolling land speeders and vulture gunships, those that offered serious resistance within the city were isolated and destroyed. Only those that offered no resistance were spared, ignored by the Sons of Medusa as they had been so ordered. The survivors wept openly, joyful only to be taken by the Inquisition's troops for processing and judgment in the Holy Ardos' assized bastions located in the Imperial landing zones. The old city was firmly in the hands of the Imperials within 56 solar hours of the commencement of the Sons of Medusa's attack. News of the massacre soon spread across Galen Six, and a shroud of terror descended upon the planet. Before long, millions of natives and refugees alike surrendered, even though to do so was believed to be a death sentence at the hands of the Inquisition, rather than to live in fear of what was to come. The ruins of Old City were repurposed and rebuilt as an internment and processing center to handle Galen Six's population. Overall, the Galen campaign was considered a success, although much of the population of Old City had been slain. The total death toll was considered light compared to that of the lengthy planet-wide campaigns of attrition. Amazingly, the Oreo Hereticus was merciful, indenturing the majority of the planet's population into a lifetime of penal servitude to pay for their crimes and transgressions against the Emperor. As a result, the Departamento Minotaurum raised the number of fresh penal legions for the most hardened elements found on the world while the rest of the population was set to toil on Galan Six itself or deported elsewhere within the Maelstrom Zone to aid the rebuilding effort. The Sons of Medusa departed Galen Six shortly thereafter, leaving the planet as a veritable prison world whose population would pay for their crimes against the Imperium for generations. Yet, while this was taking place, arriving without warning in 910.m41, 
an unidentified fire-blackened space marine strike cruiser, identifying itself with ancient, though still valid, Imperial authorization protocols. It was the Levitus Vex, and its coming heralded the arrival of the Force, whose name was to become synonymous with bloodshed and the darkest acts of the Badab War. The unidentified Space Marine Force had come to offer its aid to the Loyalist cause against the Secessionists, claiming to have come in the answer to the summons from Terra itself. They identified their chapter as the Carcharodons Astra, using the ancient High Gothic form of their name, also known as the Carcharodons, and formally requested the Loyalists' acceptance and permission to enter the war zone and draw blood. That's right, folks. We have finally arrived at the chapter we have all been waiting for. The Predators of the Void, silent killers that appear from the darkest parts of space, slaughter their enemies and then slip back into the night as if they weren't even there. The only clue that they were was the mutilated bodies of their foes. The Carcharodons are a Loyalist Space Marine chapter of an unknown founding, though it has been alleged to be either an ancient chapter born as early as the second founding, or a relatively new chapter raised during the 23rd founding. The Carcharodons are also allegedly a successor chapter of the Raven Guard, though this remains unconfirmed as well. The Carcharodons may actually be the same chapter as the Space Sharks. The term Carcharodons might simply be a fragment of their name translated into High Gothic as Carcharodonsostra for that same unit of Astartes. Now, the founding of the Space Sharks remains shrouded in mists of long-lost antiquity, thousands of standard years in the past, though it has been stated in Imperial chapter records that the Carcharodons have been serving the Void Father for ten standard millennia. This alone would not be enough to warrant special consideration, but the Carcharodons' mystery has not lessened in the recent centuries. Rather, it has grown from each bloody deed and unexpected strike the Carcharodons perform. Now, the very name of this chapter is synonymous with cold, dark depths of the void and the hungry predators that lurk within. The Carcharodons have always been a fleet-based chapter, following the far rarer nomad predation pattern rather than the more common crusading pattern adopted by countless other mobile space marine chapters. Now, this isn't the first time I have run into the Carcharodons in my chronicling. They are mentioned in my short fox about Abaddon's 7th Black Crusade called The Rise of Evil where they save some blood angels from the despoiler himself. It's a fun one if you have the time to check it out. But before we move on with what the Carcharodons are going to be doing in the Badab War, there is a quote from the Canticle of Cassandra, Levi Volume 106, Chapter 1, Paragraph 28, which states, <clears throat> And so the gray clad came from the outer night, and the jagged maw did swallow the stars. And their black gaze did mirror the void of oblivion. Their pale shadows fell upon the servants of the Scold One, with great fury from the darkness, unseen as a beast that lurks beneath the black water. Death for death, blood for blood. Thus were the sons of Sanguinius bought respite, and did turn back upon their pursuers, and so were the damned traitors of the false gods, driven unto their ruin. <laughs> Makes the hair stand up on your back a wee bit, don't it? <clears throat> Anyways, upon their arrival, the Carcharodon's force commander, Tiberos, presented the Inquisitor Legate in charge of persecuting the Badabor conflict with notices patent provided to the chapter affirming the rights and titles issued to it by several High Lords of Terra Inquisitors, now long dead. Tiberos even submitted himself for psychic probing and gene sampling. The Inquisitor's Legate vouched for the Carcharodon's, and Lord High Commander Carib Cone accepted the Carcharodons into his battle line, although he was still wary of their loyalties and their deviations from the Codex Astartes during their long voyage beyond Imperial space. The Carcharodons' reappearance, as if predators drawn by blood, when the Badab War was to enter its most deadly stage, seemed to many a suspect one at best. The Dark Chapter was about to be put to the test, because by the end of 910.m41, the strength of the Madness Warriors had been greatly diminished, but Carib Cole recognized the folly of leaving them undefeated at his flank, as the Loyalists turned their full force to the invasion of the Vidab Sector. The Adeptus Astartes Magister Militum had already considered a change in his deployments in order to mount a renewed offensive against the Enemium Cluster. 
But with the arrival of the Karkradons, the Lord High Commander of the Red Scorpions had been offered an unexpected asset to deploy. And so he let loose their savage ferocity against the Mantis Warriors and the unsuspecting worlds of their domain. The fleet of the Karkradons broke out of the warp directly above the Sigard system on the galactic plane, perilously close to the Sigard's swollen and violent sun, masking their presence with its solar flares. Split up into dozens of striking forces, the gray-clad space marines let the Sigard system have the first taste of their wrath and fury as they proceeded to devastate the numerous belt colonies, ship clans, and asteroid citadels. The Karkradons proceeded to devastate the entirety of the system, destroying in mere solar days and weeks what had taken millennia to build, and had withstood the ravages of Xenos and Corsairs alike. In the aftermath of this brutal campaign, an Imperial naval scout vessel reported the entire system littered with wreckage, their vox channels full of discordant, ghostly vox signals of dead and dying ships. It is also noted that the Karkradons had deliberately plundered and scavenged, both in terms of gear, resources, and human life. It has been the conclusion of several authorities that Sigod, with its wealth and void colonies and infrastructure, had been the Karkaradon's first target, not simply because it was a long connections with Mantis warriors, but because after the Karkaradon's unknown voyage from the long outer darkness, they had need of its bounty to replenish themselves in readiness for their part in the war. The Karkradons continued to systematically annihilate planets and the cluster known to have harbored the Mantis warriors, forcing the secessionist chapter to stop using their hit-and-run tactics against the Loyalists and mass their forces in defense of these worlds. This strategy spared the Karkradons from having to pursue them across the Ediminium cluster, to places where their foe had the advantage of support and local knowledge. First, the Karkradons ravaged the feudal world of Iblis, smashing its infrastructure and putting its rulers to the sword. Then they attacked the planet's scattered settlements and nomadic crawler caravans by night, leaving bloody wreckage in their wake. They proceeded to turn Iblis into a wasteland inhabited only by shell-shock survivors. The savage chapter then moved on and attacked the blighted industrial world of Ediminium Prime itself, with a small fire angel's force already held command of the decrepit Manufacturatoria complex against the Mantis warriors' led insurgents. The Karkradons launched an orbital assault, oblivious to the fire angel's disposition, into the contested battle. Hundreds of gray drop pods dropped to the soot-caked planet amid a great slaughter. Honor-bound to defend this world, the Mantis warriors were forced to respond, coming to Endominium Prime's aid, with increasing numbers of their chapter to curb the savagery of the Karkradon's assault. Though the Mantis warriors matched the Karkradons with their own fierce martial skills, they were too few, and could not turn the tide of the assault. Led by their chief librarian, Ahazra Redth, the Mantis warriors refused to retreat and died in the defense of the planet, just as the Karkradon's leader, Tiberos, had predicted. The Karkradons continued to employ this pattern on the world's Kithal, and Largator, and then the twin inhabitant worlds of the Tranquility Systems themselves. Each battle forced the Mantis Warriors to come to the aid of the beleaguered worlds, destroying the Mantis Warriors' ability to affect the war. Now worn down and scattered, the chapter had ceased to exist as an effective fighting force, but at a great price. In the aftermath of the Tranquility Campaign, the Fire Angels, having suffered heavy casualties, sought permission to withdraw from the conflict. This was in no small part due to the increasing anger of the Fire Angels against the Karkradons, with whom they had repeatedly been at odds during the Tranquility Campaign, and whose savage methods they held in utter contempt. Appalled by the actions of their allies, the Fire Angels withdrew their remaining contingents from the war with honor and returned to their homeworld to rebuild their sorely damaged chapter. With the threat of the Endominium Cluster neutralized, the Karkradons redeployed, splitting their fleets to betray the Loyalist rear echelons and relieve the Minotaurs and the Red Scorpions to consolidate ahead of the expected invasion of the Bedab Sector. Unfortunately for the ravaged people of the Edminium Cluster, this would not be the only time when Calamity was visited upon their doomed worlds, for the Karkadons would yet return in later years to enact the final act of savagery against them. Now, the question I'm sure you are asking yourself is, 
Was there a time when the Carcadons and the Executioners did battle? And if they did, well, what happened? Well, there actually was such an event that later on became known in Imperial records as the Corsirian Massacre. An Imperial Navy patrol on 910.m41 discovered the wreckage of a smuggler's base in the dust waste of the forlorn world of Corsaira II. Within the base was a nightmare scene of carnage and destruction, rarely witnessed before by men. A bloody battle had been fought between two sub-company-sized forces of space marines from the Executioners and the Carcharodons chapter. These two chapters, both infamous for their savagery and unyielding stances towards their foes, had fought each other to mutual annihilation. The base around them was ripped apart, its former inhabitants now moldering into dust. Many of the bodies of both sides showed signs of having fought on, despite suffering horrendous wounds, severed limbs, and massive trauma that should have felled even in Astartes, and several were found locked in deathly gore-splattered embraces, striking at their foe with their last ebbing strength. It is not known which chapter's last warrior survived to end to claim a bitter victory. Neither chapter has acknowledged any survivors of the massacre living to tell of what happened on Corsaira II. Now, by the mid-910.m41, there was an increase in Corsair activity along the eastern Maelstrom zone. Among those in the Loyalist High Command, this was believed to have been caused by at least one Astral Claws task force that had somehow slipped out of the Badab sector itself and was now operating from the edges of the Maelstrom. Imperial Navy Escort's Search and Destroy Squadrons were dispatched to the area to quell these attacks so that the secessionists would not be able to exploit the opportunity to start a new battlefront on the Loyalist flank. Upon the frontier world of Rook, they found their evidence. This was one of the few worlds within the Maelstrom that could be relied upon to willingly aid Imperial agents, as their population was made up of abolitionist zealots. They informed the Loyalist command that there had indeed been an increase in slave raids, of nearby systems of human courser ships, led by an Astral Claws strike cruiser identified as the Harkania. The pattern of attacks by these courser ships was tracked by the echo left in the warp to Lamptim system and its twin feral worlds of Shiprias and Scarfell. Having divined that a strong enemy force was massed at this location, the Imperial Navy squadron was forced to withdraw in order to refit and supply, returning to seek reinforcements. Unfortunately, reinforcements were really hard to come by. You see, in the northern Maelstrom zone, the Karkradons were busy carrying out the final stages of the Tranquility Campaign, while in the southern zone, the Minotaurs and the Sons of Medusa, backed by the Militarum penal regiments, were assaulting a sin on the edge of the Bedab sector itself, where the Tyrant's Legion was putting up a tenacious defense. Lord High Commander Caleb Colm marshaled his own Red Scorpion chapter and the newly reinforced Exorcist chapter contingent at Sagon in preparations for an assault on the strategic warp terminus at Pyreus. This was a vital target and considered by many to be the gateway to the Badab sector. Overall, the Loyalist forces had suffered considerable losses since the start of the war, and the contingents of many of the Space Marine chapters, which had previously fought for the Loyalist cause, had now departed. Some, such as the Howling Griffins and the Marines Errant, had withdrawn owing to the casualties they had suffered, while others, such as the Nova Marines, and most recently the Fire Angels, had departed for reasons of their own. Not only this, but remember... Thanks to the Greenskin incursion on the eastern fringes, reinforcements from the rest of the Empire were hard up as well. In short, the Loyalist forces were stretched thin, despite the fresher Space Marine companies that had recently arrived, and Cone could not afford to be drawn into fighting or an increasing number of fronts to be bled dry slowly by attrition, as no doubt was the tyrant of Badab's plan. Taking counsel with his fellow Space Marine commanders, it was the leader of the Salamanders contingent, an old and famed warrior, Pelis Mersan, who offered a solution to the events on Lepton, offering to lead his own forces in a lightning strike against Lepton. The Salamanders would rely on the element of surprise and the power of their potent battle barge, Pyre of Glory, dealing a crippling blow to the enemy. Chaplain Ivanus Incomi, representing the aloof and secretive Minotaur chapter in the War Council, offered to take his personal guard and such forces as he could muster to aid the Salamanders in this mission. 
so approved the strike force, named the Gift of Fire, was further augmented by a pair of Imperial Navy light cruisers and a frigate squadron. This force was dispatched immediately on the long voyage to the Lamptam system, there to meet the foe in the battle. When the Loyalists entered their erratic binary system of Lampton, their fears were soon realized. Above the feral worlds of Shaprias, a ragged armada of star vessels, scows, and wrecks had been assembled from scavenged hulks and pirated freighters. While Auspex scans and Augur probes revealed that on the planet below, vast camps and training grounds had been raised up. Here on Shaprias, a new army was being forged from brutal and tainted tribal warriors, enslaved to the tyrant of Adab's cause, a disposal weapon to kill and be killed by Lufthoron's will. Mersan deduced that the bulk of the enemy warships were away on some mission of plunder. There would not be a better time to strike. Swiftly, the mighty Salamander's commander configured a bold attack plan. The joint Astartes strike force made planetfall and immediately attacked the secessionist bastions and training camps. In the meantime, their ships and naval escorts immediately swept out again and set about destroying the armada as swiftly and thoroughly as possible. When the two chapters launched their drop pods and Thunderhawk gunships, they divided into their chosen killing grounds. Though they met with firmer resistance than their salamander cousins, the minotaurs were masters of siegecraft as they attacked the iron-shod bastions of the Astral Claws. Using their Thunderhawks to punch a gap in the enemy's firing lines, the gunships disgorged assault terminators and devastator squads directly into the smoking wreckage. The rest of the company's strong Minotaur's force deployed directly behind this breakpoint, suffering the brunt of the enemy counterattack. Despite heavy casualties, the Minotaur's vanguard veterans held the ruined bastion with disciplined ferocity not giving an inch of ground to the oncoming secessionists. The bronze-armored minotaurs clashed in brutal close combat with the Astral Claws retaliators, who advanced under cover of their combat shields through a hail of bolter fire to try to retake the sundered fortifications, only to be hurled back time and again from the mounts of twisted metal and shattered rockcrete. Although the numbers of the minotaurs and the defending Astral Claws of the Bastion line were roughly equal, the enemy was well entrenched, well-armed, and well-led, lacking nothing for bravery and fighting spirit. But the Minotaurs lived for this blood-soaked close-quarter hell. This was exactly the kind of battlefield in which they reveled. Led by an armored spearhead of land raiders and siege dreadnoughts, the Astral Claws were pinned in place by the Minotaurs' second attack line. Chaplain Inkami personally led a jump pack equipped vanguard veteran squad in storming the secondary enemy bastion and slaying all within. Encircled and cut off, the Astral Claws were swiftly isolated and destroyed in detail. Though their progress was slow and bloody, the secessionists could not stem the loyalist advance. The Astral Claws made them pay a price in dead for every fortification the Minotaurs took. But eventually, the bastions fell one by one and the victory was claimed by the Minotaurs. Meanwhile, the bulk of the Salamander forces descended on the heart of the city-sized training camps. A secondary force, composed of a chosen wing of Castius assault rams, carrying aboard them a force of Salamander fire drake terminators, the greatest warriors of their esteemed chapter, took on the task of attacking the secessionist landing grounds. On their first pass, the armored prowls and the magna meltas of the Castus savaged the enemy transport craft caught on the ground, sundering and burning through their hulls, rupturing their fuel tanks. The fire drakes, assaulting from their craft into the billowing black palls of smoke, turned confusion and destruction into a massacre. Their storm bolters and cyclone missile launchers, sweeping the panic foe away before any resistance could be organized. Elsewhere, the main Salamander's force, led by Captain Mersan, had descended into the heart of the enemy, deploying their troops and armor into a defensive ring at the center of the training camps. Utterly surrounded, the Salamander's force at under a hundred space marines was outnumbered more than a thousand to one by the horde of savages and mutants, the brutal inhabitants of a dozen nearby worlds that rose up before them. Though their position would have been considered a suicidal one by any other warriors, these were the scions of Vulcan, and they cared little for such odds. The great horde, which was leaderless and staggered by the sudden fury and shock of the Salamander's assault, were slow to react, and by the time they pressed the attack, they were met by a wall of firepower. 
Thousands of heretics fell within the opening minutes of the battle as whirlwind launchers, predator destructors, and the ordered ranks of the salamanders let loose with a salvo of almost point-blank range. Soon the broken grounds of the training fields was covered with mounds of twitching bodies. The horde only rallied when their taskmasters took to the field behind them, the blood-stained and steel-colored power armor of the Astral Claws. The salamanders marked their true foe in the form of retaliator squads amid the filthy rabble of the heretic horde, keeping up the relentless tide of fire. Marsan sprang the second phase of his assault plan into action, as three prized land raiders Achilles spearheaded a counter-assault aimed directly at the Elstraclaw's contingent. The tanks fired their thunderfire cannons and multi-meltas, blasting a swath through the ranks of the horde. As the land raiders plowed through the center of the Astral Claw's force, they swung aside as the fury of the ancients was unleashed. Six dreadnoughts, led by the darkly famed Braith Ashmantle, the Iron Dragon, stormed into the Astral Claw's line, smashing them asunder and drenching them with purifying flame. Overmatched and overwhelmed, the Astral Claws did not yield lightly, but were slain in glorious combat, felling two of the Salamander's ancients. As the last Astral Claws died, the name of the Tyrant of Adab was howled with their centurion's dying breath as the Iron Dragon tore him in half and cast his carcass to the winds. With their masters slaughtered, the horde panic and broke, the tens of thousands that remained alive fleeing in a mindless stampede away from the lords of fire and death at their backs, crushing and killing hundreds of their own number in the rout. Deep beneath the smashed fortifications, the Minotaurs and the Salamanders soon discovered what secrets they were built to defend. A vast natural cavern system housing Heretech laboratories. These have been manufacturing combat drugs in vast quantities and attempting primitive gene tampering and experimental surgery on the feral warriors of Shiprias. Along with the hundreds of Imperial prisoners taken in raids across the eastern Maelstrom zone. At the lowest levels, guarded by a cadre of the hated corpse-taker apothecaries of the Tyrant's Legion and their servitors, was an armored vault within which was a store of space marine gene seed in part stolen from the Loyalists fallen in battle. The conflict in orbit had also gone to the Loyalists' favor, while the battle raged below, but not without cost. While the makeshift Amarna had been blasted to scrap and burning debris, Concealed weapon platforms set to guard the fleet had inflicted damage to the Pyre of Glory and gutted the sword-class frigate Epona, which had to be abandoned as a burning hulk. Less than 11 solar days after the battle was first joined, the Gift of Fire task force departed the Lamptan system to undertake the perilous voyage back to Loyalist-held space, with over a thousand freed prisoners carried in the holds of its naval light cruisers and the priceless recovered gene seeds held in the inner sanctum of the Pyre of Glory itself. The Gift of Fire had claimed a great victory for the Loyalists, and uncovered and thwarted a dark machination of the tyrant that, if left to hatch, could have had dire consequences for the Imperium. Little did any of the Loyalist High Command suspect, however, that the attack at Lambton would have immediate and unforeseen consequences that would unexpectedly alter the course of the Badab War. The Gift of Fire task force was unexpectedly struck by a powerful warp squall and scattered en route back to the Imperial-controlled space. Calamity was averted by the formidable skills of their lead navigator, and only a single frigate was lost in the Immaterium. While the Salamander's battle barge, Pyre of Glory, and the light cruiser, Admiral Gregarious, were turned back into the Maelstrom, riding ahead of the Stormfront and forced to ford into real space and the relative stability of the Kala Shoals within the Maelstrom's boundary to repair and refit. The Loyalist arrival, though, had not gone unnoticed, for soon news of their presence was carried to the secessionists. The Astro Claw's strike cruiser, Hyrcania, was still in the region, having found its home base at Chaprias destroyed. Its master, Arc Centurion Karnak Commodus, craved vengeance and atonement for his failings in the eyes of his lord. But Commodus knew that alone, his vessel stood little chance of taking on the wounded loyalists. He sent an encrypted astropathic message seeking aid, and was received by an unexpected ally in the Phaeton's Wrath, flagship battle barge of the Executioner's Chapter, and her accompanying Gladius-class frigate escorts, 
which had been taking on supplies in an uninhabited ocean world of Deluge, on the edge of the Magog Cluster. Their combined battle group attacked the wounded Loyalist vessel as they moved towards the warp transfer point at Kala to embark once again. The light cruiser Admiral Gregorius was blasted to atoms in the opening salvo of the secessionist guns. The Pyre of Glory quickly proved to be far less easy prey. The Salamander's mighty battle barge managed to repel the first boarding assaults against her and destroyed two of the attacking frigates. But after a three-hour-long running battle, the Fiaton's Wrath managed to entirely disable the Pyre of Glory's thrusters, leaving it dead in space. High Mortuary Thulsa Kane, Vox signaled the Salamander's vessel and offered them the chance for honorable surrender, vouching safe passage for them from the war zone under oath not to take up arms again in the conflict. Captain Pellis Mersan conceded to this demand despite the misgivings of some of those under his command, knowing that to do so would risk his force being destroyed without being able to strike back at their foe having himself fought alongside the Executioner's chapter centuries before as a scout marine neophyte, he trusted to their oath of offered surety. Both the Fiaton's wrath and the Hyrcania drew alongside the battered pyre of glory and docked, Dulce Kane personally leading the Executioner's boarding party and accepting Mersan's sword and surrender as the Salamanders stood down their arms. It was then elsewhere within the great ship the unthinkable occurred. Thanks to the conditions of the surrender, Arch-Centurion Commodus led his own boarding party to seize the Pyre of Glory's armories nearly unopposed. Heedless of the consequences, Commodus sought to breach the ship's sanctum vaults and seize not only the recovered gene seed from the caverns of Shapiris, but also the Salamander's own recovered stock from the fatalities sustained during the conflict. When the Salamander apothecaries resisted, Commodus cut them down. He then unleashed his unfettered wrath upon the Salamanders, ordering the massacre of the Salamanders they had taken prisoner. He then ordered his corpse-takers to strip them of their gene seed, whether dead or alive. A pitched battle quickly broke out across the decks. As reports reached the bridge of what was happening, Thulsa Kane was incensed with murderous rage. Seeing this reaction, Mersan wisely divined that the executioners may not have possessed full knowledge of the heresy and blasphemy committed by the Astral Claws, perhaps having been deliberately deceived by the tyrant of Adab. Controlling his own outrage, Mersan poured deliberate scorn on the executioner's leader, both for this breach of his word and the dishonor of standing by and allowing the tyrant's sins to go unchallenged. Were the reports of his executioner's own eyes giving the gravity of the truth of Mersan's claims, Cain's wrath was terrible to behold. He declared that the blood oath binding his chapter and Luthoron's cause had been violated, and the dark stain of infamy the Astral Claws had brought upon them could only be washed clean by a river of blood. Those salamanders that survived what was to come have since given witness that a bleak madness came upon the executioners as Cain's pronouncement, and that they tore into the Astral Claws with a murderous vengeance. Heedless of the risk of their own lives, satisfied only that their former allies would die by their hands, regardless of the cost. Captain Mersan rallied his surviving salamanders and mounted a defense of the battle barge's inner sanctum, unleashing the power of the mighty ancients, the Dreadnoughts, led by Brearth Ashmantle upon the apostate astral claws. First the corridors and vaults of the Pyre of Glory, and then the astral claws, Hyrcania ran red with blood. This dreadful battle became known in the legends of the war as the Red Hour, as every single Astral Claw, Chapter Surf, and Servitor present was relentlessly hunted down and slaughtered. The Hyrcania was left a charnel house of decapitated bodies, as the executioners took more than 200 heads from their former allies. Thulsa Kane came alone before the Salamander's commander, and knelt in the light of the burning sanctum braziers. Offering him no words, he presented a single gory object which rolled at Mersan's feet, the head of the Astra Claw's arc-centurion Commodus. Without further comment, the executioners withdrew, leaving the stricken Salamander's battle barge and the empty Astra Claw's strike cruiser docked alongside. The executioners' maddened desire for vengeance had not been satiated, and soon its message reached every corner of the Maelstrom Zone. From this point onward, the Executioner's chapter became a rogue element in the conflict. 
not only seeking out and descending with suicidal fury on the Astral Claws and their agents wherever they could be found, but also refusing to surrender to the Loyalist forces when encountered. The most notorious incident of this kind occurred when the executioners destroyed the Sons of Medusa strike cruiser, Warp Spite, in the grief system in 911.m41. But there were other incidents as well. Beyond these lamentable incidents, the Executioner's chapter's attacks on the wider Imperial shipping ceased almost immediately. These unusual developments were only explained some solar months later, when the badly wrecked Pyre of Glory finally limped into port as the Loyalist battle station at Cerngrad with their strange and bloody tale to tell. For the Tyrant of Adab's cause, there could have been no more bitter a blow than that struck by these allies turned enemies. Not only had the severing of the executioners from the secessionist cause robbed Huron's forces of much of its remaining strength in warships and raider craft, but as foes, the executioners were both implacable and had the advantage of detailed knowledge of many of the secessionists' hidden bases and deployments, which they put to immediate use in destroying them. With first the Lamenters and then the Mantis warriors shorn from the secessionist order of battle, and now most bitterly, the executioners turned against him. Luft Huron and what remained of his once mighty astral claws were truly alone before the Imperium's wrath, their dreams of dominion and eternal glory shattered. And that's where I'm going to leave you this week. Join us next week for the exciting conclusion of the Badab War. If you enjoyed this box, feel free to subscribe, comment, follow, and like. And if you really like our stuff, please join our membership squad on our YouTube channel, Tales of Asheraka. With your support, we can continue to build and grow our voxes, as well as some cool extra stuff for you guys to join. Once again, we need the support of you, our dear listeners, so we can continue to make a successful show that you all enjoy. We will also be opening up a shop for you guys to get some sweet swag. But until then, we need support in the form of members. If you are listening on Spotify, don't worry, you can help as well. If you click the support podcast button on any of the descriptions on Spotify, you can donate to our success too. Well, I think that's enough grandstanding for me today. I'll just go ahead and get off my soapbox and say as always, <clears throat> Until next time, this is Ekthar, signing off.